Welcome cool. back to the channel, guys. I'm joined today by my good friend Tajiro. Tajiro. <laughs> Hello, sir. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And you? I'm very well. I'm happy to see your setup. Yeah, now, me too. In real time, it's very cool. So, are you inside? Yeah, I'm uh, indoors. I, I've got a lot of plants behind me for people who can't see. Just oh, yeah. a frame that's completely filled with uh, English ivy. I want to either link your music videos or show them on the screen because they're really cool. They remind me of of this setting where uh, you use yeah. the funny instruments. Do your magic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I might do my magic. Maybe not. Maybe I'm lazy tonight. Uh <laughs> Hi. This silly instrument is a iwi or an electronic wind instrument because it's electronic i can play any sound on it that i can find on the internet like this person made a kalimba made in a coffee can played by a coin which is what you're hearing right now so let's listen to what it sounds like So I met Tanjiro in the gym, I think maybe a year ago or something. What do you think? Something like that, yeah. And Tanjiro likes to work out with rings. And I'm very bad with rings, so then there's always something to learn. <laughs> so that was really cool. And um, yeah, I thought Tanjiro was a very interesting guy, intellectually inclined or philosophically inclined, like I said last week to my brother. <laughs> He's fine. a philosophically inclined guy. And basically today I wanted to take the opportunity to really get to know him from the ground up and for the rest of us to also get to know him because I'd love to have him on again to discuss some more specific things, but I always prefer the story over anything else. Mm -hmm. So basically you can start wherever you want to start in your childhood and just tell us uh, about yourself. Okay. Yeah. This will be interesting because I don't think I've ever talked for more than 15 minutes with someone and not spend the next day thinking about everything I said, which I should have said. <laughs> well, now I will, I will record it so you can yeah, even... Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's going to be interesting for me listening back to this and thinking, oh, I should have voiced this differently or been more articulate here, or mm -hmm. things like that. But um, to get started, um, my earliest active memory is when I was almost six. I think it was just before my sixth birthday. And my parents decided that I should learn an instrument, a musical instrument. And they took me to a store called Eiland Music, which no longer exists, unfortunately, in Arnhem, which is where I grew up. And I really wanted to play the flute. And my little five-year-old hands were not, and my arms were not long enough to reach the end of the flute. So I was really disappointed that I couldn't play flute. <laughs> um, so instead, uh, I opted for the saxophone. Um, but also, once again, the same problem. So I used a curved soprano saxophone, which is a very funny looking instrument. It looks like a saxophone made for babies, which it, it kind of is. And then whenever somebody like an, a fully sized adult plays it, it looks really goofy. All right. Say, I'm going to I'm going to put it up in the screen now. Yeah. So, so yeah. People can see. It's just a tiny saxophone. Mm -hmm. um, so it looks it looked good on me as a kid. I might send you a picture of that, too. And um, and that kind of started a lifelong obsession. And it 
in a in a very strong way directed the way which my life was going to go. Uh, eventually, uh, if you fast forward, I ended up moving to New York to pursue music and study saxophone when I was 16. And throughout my childhood, I spent a lot of time in the practice room. And I lived in Arnhem, but when I was a teen, I would go to Amsterdam two or three times a week just to get lessons and practice there and stuff like that. So that, besides the normal childhood stuff, I would say that was the the biggest factor in my life that was different from people around me. And besides that, I think I, I had a really, really kind of pure childhood, very, um, I wouldn't say sheltered, but but it's the idea that you have when you think of a sheltered childhood. So yeah. like close with family in a nice yard in a kind of suburban area, a bit away from the city and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And you, because you just said you were from the village. So Oh, well, this isn't about me, but I, I will say a little bit. I think maybe people would know this about me. I don't think so. I grew up close to TJ. I mean, honestly, uh, the Netherlands is so small that I grew up close to you wherever you would have grown up. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, a very green area, a lot of also a bit away from the city, a lot of space, a lot of siblings, <laughs> a lot of, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of freedom. So, so yeah, I think, I think similar to yours because I've seen a, I've seen a video Tajiro made a beautiful video about his his childhood home on uh, on Instagram. It's really really wholesome. I showed it to <laughs> yeah, uh, it to my fiance, being like, "This is a major green flag for a friend." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're ever going on a date, just show them that video, and it's like, okay, for a friend maybe, but maybe if you're going on a date, the girl will think like he's so attached to his oh, yeah. mom. <laughs> well, she thinks that of... she's not worth it, man. She's not worth yeah. it. I spend a lot of time with my with my mom and dad. I'm I'm going to visit them three weekends in a row coming up. So three weekends oh, of being awesome. back home in Arnhem. Okay. Because I back when I had a had a girlfriend for a long time, she would kind of uh, she wouldn't be resistant to going there, but she would always be thinking like, oh, "We have to go there again. We were just there last weekend, mm -hmm. and now you want to go there again and again and again mm -hmm. and stuff like that." But you do. Yeah. And now I have now I have the freedom to go there as, as much as I want, which is fun because I my dad is very um, inclined towards finding solutions towards problems that either exist or he has made up. Oh, amazing. Uh, and they're usually um, like kind of engineering or handyman solutions. So yeah. we'll find some problem and we'll make up this engineering solution to it. And my mom, well, he's he has a very deep character, I would say, but my mom, too. But she is more. I would also say inclined towards literature and fine arts. So mm. it's really nice. I feel like I'm getting the full package. Yeah, you get there. the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. It's it's the sense I got it got from you when I got to know you. Because in, in many ways, you are very like practical and I think smart in that way. Mm -hmm. But also discovering mm -hmm. like your... <laughs> Your literature well, side and your more intuitive side, I think, is very. Well, I would say that my parents are a lot like you in the sense that when you talk to them for an extended period of time, mm -hmm. you feel like you're more discovering things about yourself than about the other person. <laughs> yeah. So the way in which they ask questions and let you talk is very is very reflective. Well, that's amazing. I'd love to. That, I'd love that's to meet what them I, one day. That's what I would have said at your birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. So we had a. Just to tell the viewers, we had a birthday party last week. The Halloween decorations are gone, sadly. <laughs> Except for we got some Dia de, los, Dia de los Muertos above here, but you can't see them. Mm -hmm. We like them because of the colors. Mm -hmm. And it was basically a lot of uh, 
sentimental talk. So it was nice. We were all wearing costumes. It was pretty good. <laughs> you're you're a good, very good speaker when it comes to putting your friends in the spotlight. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And family. Thank you, sir. Yeah, we had uh, 50-50 family friends. So that's always... Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Okay, I want to... I want to zoom in on some things that I find interesting thus far. Your parents are very interesting to me thus far. Do you know how they met, for example? Do you know a bit of their story? I do. Um, I mean, this story has been told to me many times in many different ways. Mm -hmm. um, but from kind of um, consolidating the different ways in which it's been told, my conclusion is that my mom worked in a clothes store when she was 15 and my dad was 17. And... My dad's mom, so my grandma, had been to that store and seen my mom um, and said to my dad that that's a very cute girl. Like, you should go to this clothing <laughs> store because a very cute girl is working there. You should go there and have a look. And so my dad did. Um, and my mom and her family are were refugees at the time. They'd been in the Netherlands for three years because they were refugees from Uganda, from the Idi Amin regime. Um, so this was in 75, 1975. They came in 72. Um, and my dad, uh, went there and saw my mom in all her radiant beauty working behind the counter or something like that. Um, and then he was, I, I would assume entranced immediately, uh -huh. but he knew also from talking to my mom and knowing stuff about the family that it was a very, in, in a sense, traditional family, them coming from Africa. Um, and that he couldn't, he couldn't get away with asking my mom on a date and then meeting the family. And it, it wouldn't have been that easy. Yeah. So how it ended up going is that he befriended my mom's younger brother and, um, and kind of came into the house to familiarize himself with the family, um, as just a friend of, wow. of her That's brother. Level. Okay. Yeah, so they could kind of accept him and, and come to terms. But my, my dad told me a story which my mom says isn't true, but that even that when they were engaged, that my grandpa, so my mom's dad, still had the idea of that there might be a possibility of fixing an arranged marriage for my mom so she would have <laughs> to marry my dad. So well. there was definitely a long way to go in, in, their, in their acceptance. But they, they told me some really wholesome stories about. So when my mom came here, she didn't speak Dutch, obviously, because she was mm -hmm. a Uganda refugee. So she spoke Gujarati from Indian, Indian region of Gujarat and uh, English. And um, they would be on the train together and my mom would just be pointing at things. And my dad would tell her what the what the Dutch word for it is. Oh. Uh, and so that they were they were in love beyond um, the language barrier and my wow. dad's English is is fine it's it's not the best but it's um it there was definitely it would have been really hard for them or for any two normal people to be able to build a relationship with the language barrier they had so I'm always very curious to think back on how that how that happened how they yeah. got together beyond that and how they kind of expressed this idea of language together and my dad learned English that way and my mom learned Dutch that way just from pointing at things and so what discussing did, did she speak English at all or no? Yeah, she she did okay. and he he barely did. I mean, I've been around my dad's family and their English is not great. Okay. Uh sometimes it's very funny cuz I I had an intern my girlfriend was from the US and yeah. um and she would be going to these family events and having a very hard time yeah, understanding what my dad's family was talking about or trying to talk about. Yeah. Cuz they're basically just speaking Dutch with a with 
sort of a, an English accent and, okay. and saying it's Dutch, right? Or saying yeah. it's English. <laughs> we call it a stone, a stink stone coal. Yeah. Stone yeah. coal English. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really just refined type of stuff. Yeah. It's the best <laughs> word for Dutch. It's very refined. Okay. Mm. So that's your parents. What about your, your childhood outside of the music? Like how was it growing up in school, for example? Did you have a good time? <laughs> I I remember um, whenever I think back on the past, I kind of have this melancholic uh, feeling about it, this kind of sadness as if I was always stressed about things. Yeah. Um, but I, I also remember my childhood being very good and, and being really nice and having so many great memories. I just think that it's this thing about me thinking back on things that makes me sad. And that's why I think I was sad at the yeah. time. But, but in truth, it's just me thinking back to that period in a certain way. Mm. But um, so I skipped two classes in elementary school. So I was always two years younger than the other kids. Damn, son. Which it was, it was kind of <laughs> difficult at times. It was very weird. Yeah. Um, especially when it came to uh, the girls yeah. and things like that. And they were yeah. 12 and whatever and, and looking and, and they wanted to meet like older guys yeah, of course. Were than 14 or whatever. Yeah. And I was just like, a I felt completely like a young kid who wasn't supposed to be there me mm -hmm. being 10 mm -hmm. and them 12 and looking for 14 and stuff like that yeah um so from the outside and looking back on it that was always a bit of a strange artifact in my child in my childhood but i never felt like that at the time nobody ever said to my face like you are too young or it's weird that you're so young or something like that like stuff like that um so that wasn't really a problem. I just remember um I just remember trying to be older really badly, trying to uh and and actually feeling older. I remember thinking like, "Oh, I'm not like the other kids of my age. I'm already mm. older." Mm. And um I I wondered to what extent that was true. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that kind of was true. I don't know. It's yeah. To, At least you were two grades up, so you got the the experience. Of yeah, that. and and how the second one happened was because I I was in, in my elementary school, they had combined classes. So how it works uh, for international viewers also is you have eight years of elementary school. The first two being what Americans would call kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And then you have six, um, whereas Americans would have five usually until they go to middle school and we would go to high school immediately. Um, and so in the last couple of years, I remember I was in six seven which was a combined class so the teacher had to teach two grades at the same time so grade six and grade seven um, and there was also a, another classroom which had grade seven grade eight so grade seven was basically split between two classrooms one which was six seven and one which was seven eight and when i was in six seven in six uh in the sixth part of that the teacher asked all students whether they wanted to be in six seven for seventh grade or in seven eight to do seventh grade so which of the split classrooms they wanted to go to and um she asked a lot of students and only a handful of them would go to seven eight and i remember telling her that i wanted to go to seven eight instead of six seven because i like to listen to what the higher grades are talking about i like to listen <laughs> to when i was in six seven i'd like to listen to what grade seven was doing and i said i want to be in grade seven eight and listen to what grade eight is doing and then she asked me what are you going to do then when you're going to eighth grade and you can't listen to a higher grade anymore uh, and that's the grade i ended up skipping so ah, i went to seven eight and then listened to all the grade eight stuff brilliant. and then skipped skipped that one but did you do the um, 
the final examination then in the seventh. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, I did those two as a as a combined. Yeah. As a combined year, and I remember it being kind of stressful because me going to seven eight instead of six seven already meant losing a lot of my friends, and mm. then going to to um, seven eight and being part of the eighth grade already meant I had to make new friends entirely as well. Yeah. And then the year after that, I went to a different school, the high school, and I again have to do it all again. So that mm. part was kind of felt kind of stressful i remember as a kid yeah like moving between uh between the classes mm. and i wanted to tell you about another story um about how just like this childhood mind um for me was very goal oriented so i remember my parents and i always kind of went back and forth mostly me and my dad my mom is a big supporter of letting kids just kind of be kids and growing by themselves and my dad was more trying to teach me values like discipline um and one of the ways in which he tried to do that is through getting me to practice saxophone at regular hours um multiple times throughout the week um just in schedule and um there was one day in which i had some friends over and my dad wanted me to practice and um 4 p.m. had rolled around and I was supposed to have practice and I hadn't. And my dad was starting to get a bit frustrated. Like we had this arrangement, you were supposed to have practice and I hadn't. And then 5 p.m. came around and my friends were still there and I still hadn't practiced. And so 6 came around and at 6 p.m. my dad had enough of it and said, okay, we're done with this saxophone stuff for now. You're going to quit playing saxophone if you can't um, muster up the discipline to learn this instrument and practice it regularly then I'm not going to put all this money and effort and time into driving you to practice, paying for lessons and all that kind of stuff. So I thought, man, I've always thought that I was going to be a saxophone player for my profession, but now I'm not allowed to play anymore. So what am I going to do now? And so I decided that I was going to be a doctor for like (laughs) a couple, couple days time. I decided I was going to be a doctor. And, um, and so I started looking into how to treat burns like on the internet, on the computer. Cause I uh-huh. thought like, man, I have to figure this out right now. <laughs> like I only have a couple of years. <laughs> so I started looking into how to treat burns, how to like cure broken arms, stuff like that. I was like looking yeah. it up on the internet just cause I felt like from practicing saxophone and developing that bit of discipline that I had, I felt like I had to be busy with what goal I had in life yeah. multiple times a week at regular hours. Yeah which worked for saxophone but for school and becoming a doctor yeah i can imagine really work, right? a little yeah. more difficult just mm-hmm. to get internet stuff so yeah yeah actually make you a bit more confused but i i remember looking back on things like that and, and thinking that it was kind of maybe strange or unique to me or just or just to the childhood brain in general that you feel like you have to have this goal already and then later on in life me and a lot of people around me are more confused about this goal and have kind of let go of this idea and feel kind of lost, which feels funny that the clearest or the time in my life that I felt clearest about what my goal was, was when I was like 10 years old and had to become a doctor because yeah. I couldn't play the saxophone anymore. Well, yeah, when people ask me what I wanted to be, it was always just professional football player or professional baseball player or professional. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it would be garbage man because I wanted <laughs> everything or nothing. That's that's mm-hmm. That's still the personality, I think. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. A little more nuanced. Okay. Well, you know, garbage man, you you got you still got chances. I'm going <laughs> to link a conversation between mm-hmm. a comedian and a garbage man. This was excellent. It was a garbage man <laughs> sure. in New York. So uh-huh. interesting. 
he said that there was like a lottery to become a garbage man. You would have to pay quite a quite a sum to even mm -hmm. be considered as a garbage man. Like it's <laughs> it's an elite job in some places. Mm -hmm. so, so just so people know out there, and they get like early retirement as well. So, oh, that's I mean, nice. to be fair, yeah, in, in New York at least, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, else. especially in New York, if the garbage men go on strike, then within a day, that city is just a yeah, it's complete done. hellhole. Yeah. Okay, let's let's zoom in on that. You went to New York. I didn't know that about you. Oh yeah, at yeah. sixteen. So you did uh -huh. you already finish high school at this time? Yeah, I finished when I was sixteen. Yeah, because I skipped those two grades. Legendary. And, it's unheard um, of, by the way, for the people at home. It uh, <laughs> doesn't happen here. It was... Um, I have very mixed feelings about my experiences there, mm -hmm. but I think it was very necessary. It was good character building in a way. Very expensive, but very good character building. Um, and at the time, New York and Brooklyn was the poorest area that I'd ever seen. So me coming from the Netherlands, which is obviously very wealthy... And we have our problems in the Netherlands, but but there's very few people who have it as bad as some of the people in the U.S., right? Yeah. Um, not to discredit people in the Netherlands who have actual and real problems, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, that was um, it was a big eye opener. And that dream to go to New York had kind of been talked into me because um, I went there to, to pursue jazz saxophone. And um, jazz saxophone is considered to be at the highest level in New York. So a lot of people around the world, when they're at a at a decent level or they feel like they've outgrown their region or the city they grew up in, they go to their country's capital and then go to New York and play and learn and stuff like that. So a lot of great musicians gather there. Um, but I really wanted to go there to study in New York before I'd ever been there, before I'd ever visited, before I'd known what life is like there. So I'd been dead set on going there and moving there, even though I had no clue what it was like there. And I remember going there with my parents the first time for the very first time and thinking, man, is this it? Because it's kind of just like skyscrapers and that yeah. it feels like that's just it. And mm -hmm. there's not a lot more to it. Because um, I remember your your brother wants to go or wanted to go there too, right? Yeah, he had a similar dream. And it yeah. was similarly talked into him, yeah. I think. <laughs> and now so, he wants yeah. to go to Brazil. So it's pretty so, interesting. So there's a... There's so much imagery and so many movies of New York looking beautiful and Rockefeller Center and Washington yeah. Square Park looking gorgeous. And when I was at Washington Square Park, it it wasn't gorgeous. It was the winter time, and um, I took the subway there, and there was a, a an a, enormous amount of homeless people with severe mental illnesses within the subway system, and there still is, and it's gotten worse now. Um, and I remember thinking, man, this dream of mine of this being such a beautiful place is really kind of shattering the bits. Um, but then I went into the music part of New York and that was still really great. The level of jazz musicians and musicians in general there was so high that it kind of kept the dream alive. Um, and so when I moved there when I was 16, this kind of tipping or this balancing act started to begin between the horrible living situation and and conditions within New York and the enjoyment that I got from New York being so high level in terms of music is in terms of studying music um and eventually after two years or something that the scales tipped over and I just started to get so miserable there that I had to move back to the Netherlands yeah. and um so I went there when I was 16 so there was a ton of stuff I couldn't do I couldn't um open a bank account for example 
So my mom one time visited and opened a bank account and she would give me her debit card and I could use it. And then I lost it within a couple of days, of course, because I was 16. Yeah. And then and then I was kind of lost again and I didn't know how to pay at places and stuff like that. And and so I started playing on the street a lot. Um, it's called busking there, mm-hmm. um, which New York is one of the few uh, Western world cities where you can play loud instruments on the street without any sort of permit or license or anything like that. Yeah. And I remember I was playing to get enough money to go to a party um, because the entry was 11 bucks and I had seven bucks. So I thought, okay, maybe if I play for like 15 minutes in front of Union Square, which is a big uh, commercial square in New York, I'll get somebody will give me four dollars and I'll be able to go to the party. Um, And it worked. I played for a bit and got some money and I thought, hey, this is going kind of well. Maybe I'll play for a bit longer. And then eventually uh, SZA, I don't know if you know her, she's. She has, she has two famous albums, Control and SOS. Um, she walked by and she had bright green hair at the time. That's how I recognized her because she just posted on Instagram that she had bright green hair. And yeah. then she walked by and she, and I just saw this girl with a security guard with bright green hair that I recognized. Uh, and she gave me $20 and she said, that sounds great. And then she hurried off and I just asked, are you SZA? And she said, yeah, that's me. So so wow. I went into that party with a good with a good story nice. <laughs> having a celebrity give me twenty dollars and i still have that twenty dollars too nice. it's, uh, <laughs> good it's still in my room it's uh behind a picture frame of me and my sister with me oh, putting awesome. my hand on wait I'll, I'll get it it's right here yeah let's do it it's this this picture and then oh. behind in the back is is the twenty dollars nice beautiful so what's the total time spent of you being in New York, like how long? How long did you say a year and eight months, something like okay, that? Okay, wow, that's quite long. Yeah, and there were times where I really felt like it was my home, especially mm. during the first summer when I was there, and I did not want to go back to the Netherlands. I wanted to play on the street and busk and, and make money that way and stay in the city, because at that point I also still had this dream of, of I came there in the fall, in the fall, in the first year. Uh, and so I went through winter and I thought, man, this isn't the best. Like I expected more from it. So I thought this summer is going to be crazy because then everybody, all these dreams that I've been kind of postponing are going to come alive. And there's all these music festivals and stuff like that. And uh, I was still 16, so I wasn't allowed anywhere. <laughs> so I couldn't, yeah, go, yeah. couldn't go in anywhere. So I just like had to listen from a from a distance. Okay. Yeah. But uh, when I heard difficult. that your, oh, sorry. Yeah, go when ahead. I heard that your brother was going to, decided on brazil instead i i thought maybe that that's probably for the best because it still might have the same eye-opening effects of being somewhere that's so different from where you grew up but also in a way that you might experience more positive interactions with people but but also potentially far more negative interactions right yes that's 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 very true i hope he's uh he's cautious about that but i'm sure that that it's not a terrible neighborhood where he's gonna go I hope um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think um he's gotta make his choice soon. It's between Brazil, Argentina, and Italy. So he was today he was uh, spending time at the, the club that's like taking care of it. Mm-hmm. And um it's really a big turn for him because he was always dreaming about New York and mm-hmm. I don't know, he just really likes music and, and movies and whatnot. <laughs> and so he had this dream, but then he went to New York. Mm-hmm. last year or two years ago or so with my parents and my brother and i think he got to realize some things and also speaking to other people that want to go to different places 
he realized that culture might be a bit more um, profound in, in Brazil, let's say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe, yeah, New York is kind of known as this area where people don't have the time to talk to each other and yeah. especially not the strangers or internationals or tourists yeah. or things like that. So I, I would hope for him that Brazil is more of a of a relaxed nature in the sense that you get real experiences with locals and, yeah. and have the time to talk to them and experience their culture instead of them feeling like you're a waste of time to them or something mm. like that yeah i hope so for him also learning the language hopefully could be mm. nice and he's uh same age as you were i think when he's gonna go 2007 yeah he'll be 16 mm. he'll be 16 okay. also so that's that's pretty exciting okay so that's that's new york done you come back do you continue to pursue music in any way um i was very disillusioned with it when i came back because mm-hmm. um one of the ways that one of the things that really struck me is i went to a jazz club there in new york called la lanterna which is a really famous club um and one of the best saxophone players of our generation who's called will vinson was playing there and i went with a friend of mine and we were the only two people there who were there to listen to him. And there was just another couple who was just there at the bar to have drinks. And I thought, man, it's a, it's a Friday night. This is, these are some of the best musicians in the world. And there's maybe three or four people here to listen to them. Yeah. And that kind of also made me think, um, you can be so amazing at this, at jazz music and have no audience at all. And the problem with that for me was that I knew jazz musicians that were making more money, that had bigger gigs, bigger shows with more people. Um, and they always had to compromise on the type of music they were playing. Or at least they weren't playing the type of music that I wanted to play. Um, and so I started to get this idea of jazz that if I wanted to make the type of music that I truly wanted to do, that the chance was very present that nobody would be interested in it. Yeah. Um, and the, and this kind of build it and they will come mentality started to disappear a little bit. Mm. And also I was very disappointed with the level of academic challenge at my school. I went to the new school. Mm. Um, that's just what it's called. And um, I remember taking a class called Writing for Musicians. And it was a writing class, which was also kind of oriented towards internationals. And I remember on the first day, they gave us a sheet with sentences and it said, please correct the mistakes in these sentences. And one of them was, um, my pair of ants told me to go to the store and I was supposed to correct it to my parents. And instead of pair of ants, it had to be parents. And that made me think like, man, I'm wasting my time here. Like, yeah. I'm wasting my my academic capability on on this kind of thing and i'm paying thousands of euros tuition was somewhere around forty five thousand a year and thankfully i was there largely on scholarship and but still i felt like a lot of people were putting a lot of money towards me being able to correct sentences on a sheet yeah <laughs> and so i that's why when i came back i i went to the tu delft and studied electrical engineering because i went to do a, a campus tour of the tu delft and they said that electrical engineering was one of the harder programs. And me being so bored with what it was like in the U.S., thought immediately, I'll just pick a hard one. Like, yeah. I don't need to to connect with it that much. I just want an academic challenge again. So that's why why I went to, I moved to, to The Hague. And I brought my girlfriend along with me from there, who was also studying in New York. And she went to study psychology in Leiden. And I went to study electrical engineering in Delft. So we settled on The Hague as being in the middle of uh, of the two. 
But this was all during during COVID, right? I came back just before COVID hit New York, which was the biggest stroke of luck that that I could have ever imagined. Yeah. New York during the pandemic was was brutal, right? It was mm-hmm. awful. Mm-hmm. Just everybody was bunched together. Everybody in New York lives in these tiny cubicles of apartments. So nobody was allowed outside. You're living your whole life in this tiny room up in a in a skyscraper. Yeah. Um so I was really happy to have just left before it hit. And especially the school closed, but students still had to pay the same amount of tuition. Yeah, that's wild. Huh? It was crazy. And I remember going to this conference, uh, this online conference held by the school in which they said, because the school is closed and because um, we're not able to facilitate lectures and teachings and stuff like that, we have decided not to raise the tuition this year. So they're... <laughs> What they gave back to students was not asking them for more money than they already already Gracious. were. And I knew a lot of a lot of students dropped out at that point. Some of my other friends also decided that that was a good moment to uh, to yeah. get out. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you come back to the Netherlands. You pursue electrical engineering. How was the level for you when you started that? Um, so when I started electrical engineering, I was eighteen, which is normally the age that other kids go to college Mm. so i i previously was always the young kid and people were always like amazed like he's so young and he's doing all this and then suddenly i was the same age as everyone else yeah um and this kind of um insecurity of of getting this attention of me being ahead of my age was no longer being fed because I was always getting so much attention from being younger and that played into my insecurity of needing to achieve more and more. And suddenly that part kind of fell away and I struggled with it for a week. And then after that week, I thought, oh, nobody's just paying attention to me. So I don't need to worry about this. Yeah. Um, which in a way was very nice. And I, I look back on it, me being 16, being very performance driven just for people to say, oh, he's so far ahead of his age. Yeah. And then when I was 18, I didn't worry about that at all anymore, which is very nice. That's good. And then academically, the level is is very well connected to the high school level here, I'd say, okay. at the at universities, at technical universities, which was a it was kind of like the like I had never been in New York. Mm. Um, and I remember my girlfriend and I at the time, my ex now, coming back and thinking, was it all a waste this time that we spent in New York? Because it kind of feels like it just never happened. And we continued as if we just taken the path of like normal other 18 year olds who just went to college in the Netherlands and studied yeah. something. So for me, it, it more felt like I had two weird fever dream gap years. Yeah. Um, and then just continued on with regular, normal, everyday life. Okay. So are you still doing electrical engineering? Yeah, I'm um, graduating at the end of the of the school year. So in July, something like June, July. Uh, I just went to the graduation ceremony of, of a lot of my friends who, who graduated a year earlier because I decided to do double bachelor's. So I'm also doing clinical technology now. Uh-huh. Um, so I took a year to focus on clinical technology as well. And now I'm graduating electrical engineering and then getting back into focusing on clinical tech. So I'm kind of alternating between the two uh between the two studies maybe a dumb question what is what is clinical technology yeah so um clinical technology is um often called technical medicine the same way you have um you have a lot of studies in the netherlands that are just the baseline study like mathematics and mm-hmm. then you have applied or technical mathematics which is um more so applying the theory to 
um, problems in society. And in the clinical technology studies, it's it's very similar. So just medicine or um, or healing or any other related type of, of medicinal study uh, is focused on the treatment of the patient. And then technical medicine is focused on the modern environment and the technological environment in the treatment of the patient. So it's focused on design and, MRI, and operation of MRI machines and CT scanners, um, all the way to uh, surgical robots and things like that. So it's a lot of the studying of the technology that is involved in treatment of patients with, with different types of conditions. Um, and simply said, it's just medicine with a few technological courses on, okay. on the technology surrounding it. Um, and so I decided to do technical medicine because the TU Delft was facilitating it. So it okay. would be easier to combine with electrical engineering. Otherwise, yeah. I may have settled for just medicine instead of technical medicine because mm -hmm. I was already studying electrical engineering. So I already had a technological. Yeah, I see. I see. What, what made you want to do two bachelors? Um, so when I came to the Netherlands and decided on electrical engineering, I knew that it was going to be a huge challenge, but I also knew that there was a risk that it wasn't going to feel like my calling. Um, like it may not have felt in line with my goals in life on a more like a spiritual or a personal level, um, but it was in line with my goals on an academic level. Um, and so while I was doing electrical engineering, I thought, what area do I want to apply this in? Do I want to go into space and aeronautics or do I want to go into medicine or into automotive or or military or what kind of branch do I want to use this in and I kind of settled on on medical and that was because I had been seeing a lot of uh, videos with my dad of things like babies hearing for the first time because they got cochlear implants and, oh, yeah. and stuff like that or babies seeing their being able to see their mom for the first time after they got cornea surgery and things like that um and my dad and I definitely shed a tear here and there <laughs> seeing that yeah. kind of thing. And that definitely made me settle on wanting to go into medicine and focusing on the medicinal part of uh, of electrical engineering. How is that in terms of like practically, is it is it difficult to combine the two for you in terms of um, workload? It's difficult because they don't have a lot of overlap. So that's yeah. a bit frustrating. And the TU Delft also has a very strange policy where some uh, courses allow you to make a formula sheet for the exam. So you have a, just a sheet in which you can write some notes that you can use during the exam. Um, and other courses don't have that. So electrical engineering usually allows you to write a sheet of notes for the exam and clinical technology doesn't. And so courses that are already passed in electrical engineering, I have to do again in clinical technology just because I, I passed the exam with the formula sheet uh, and I need I to be able to do it without. Like stuff like that. So there's some weird policies regarding the overlap between the two studies. And the end result is that I need to do everything again in clinical tech that I'd already done in electrical. So there is absolutely no overlap in terms yeah. of workload. Does that make it easier just to, to do the classes because you've already done them? Or is it much Sometimes, harder with the worksheet without the worksheet? Um, it doesn't make it much harder. The reason it's hard is because I have a kind of skewed mentality on exams where I study such that I make the exam and then a lot of the knowledge just passes through me and is forgotten a couple days after so yeah. the retention is quite low um so a lot of it i i really do need to do again and you mm. kind of remember i've seen this before but it's it's kind of that's it yeah from days long gone okay so this is we've passed through the academics of it all we've passed through the music a little bit 
Mm-hmm. What about family? You say that you have a sister? Yeah, I have a uh, sister who is um who is very inspiring and is a, a brilliant young lady. Uh, she's six years older than me, mm-hmm. and um, she kind of grew up as a as a second mom. We always joke her as a as a caretaker. Um, and um, I love her to bits, but there were times in our childhood where my sister would love to tell my mom about things that I did, which I wasn't supposed to do. Yeah. Um, like I would be, um, I don't know. I remember one instance where I was drawing on walls, <laughs> like, <laughs> like just like with a marker and stuff like that. And my sister wouldn't necessarily try to stop me. And that was the end of it. She would sooner run to my mom and be like, look at what he's doing stop him <laughs> like that kind yeah, of thing. yeah um but she was she had some mischief of her own one of my uh, dear childhood memories is that um well it's it's a dear memory in hindsight right but um she asked me to close my eyes and open my mouth because she would have a surprise for me and i thought she's going to give me a nice piece of candy or something like that and uh, so i closed my eyes and opened my mouth and she took off her dirty sock and put oh. it in my mouth <laughs> Trust so like lost. things like that yeah and uh, we would have these things where we would make a platter of just little bowls full of random food things we found around around the house so we would have these little bowls and some of them would have jello or cacao powder or turmeric or just stuff we found around the kitchen and um she would love to put some crazy stuff in there for me she would put like just like chili powder and then just feed yeah. me a spoon of chili powder and be like you have to taste this <laughs> like stuff like that yeah. so but now she she um she had a similar path to me um in terms of musical development so she did it in in classical music classical piano and i did it in jazz saxophone so she she's still practicing and, and performing and teaching um and i love going to her concerts there's one on uh, december 16th in uh in hilversum and um, she is, um, remember, I was very disillusioned with the state of jazz music and mm-hmm. music and, and things like that. She is um, much more motivated and inspired to change the state of the musical environment herself. So classical music is has a tendency to be very traditional. Um, and she incorporates more modern elements. She lets, she doesn't mind if th- there's this thing in classical music for people who don't know. If you're going to to an orchestra performance of a large um, written concert, it might consist of four parts, and you are not supposed to clap between the parts. Uh, yeah. I went to uh, Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto the other day. I think last week's uh, Thursday. And there was a girl behind me and between the parts, it was completely silent within the concert hall, but I could hear her say like, are we allowed to clap? I want to clap, like things like that. And then at the very end, when people were standing up and clapping, I heard her say like, why Why are we allowed to clap now, but not yeah. before? <laughs> like, things like that. So, so a lot of those kind of traditions and customs and also traditions surrounding how you're supposed to dress and present yourself and talk to the audience, she's, she's getting rid of and um that build it and they will come mentality really actually works for her she's doing a great job in in incorporating those those elements which is which is funny because i i thought man this isn't gonna work and i kind of gave up on it a little bit and she didn't at all and it does work for her so it's she's kind of this constant image in my mind of would i have been able to pull off what she pulled off and her having done it in classical and me and in jazz Mm. Well, a lot of different vari- variables for sure. 
Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so don't feel too bad if <laughs> it's, it's the case. <laughs> but I mean, you're doing electrical engineering and clinical technology, so I wouldn't, mm. uh, I wouldn't see it as a waste at all. Yeah, it's. It, I've really learned to value um, my family a lot more in recent in the recent year, the past year, I'd say. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that is the passing of my grandma, which was a couple months ago. Yeah. Um, and um, I'd always felt I've always had this mentality of that I don't really care about uh, my family being family unless I know them. So because my family is based off of uh, or went through a, um, through a great separation when they turned into refugees. A lot of my family went to Canada, some went to the UK and others to Portugal and some to the Netherlands. And um, and I remember thinking about this Canadian part of the family. I've never met them or never seen them, some of them. Why would I treat them like family if they have never been there for me? Because yeah. um, a lot of Indian cultures uh, have this idea of if you share the same last name, then you can knock on their door in the middle of the night and and be fed and sleep there and pass on in the morning again because you guys are family, even if you don't know each other. Um, and I was never a big fan of that. Um, but in recent times, I've really learned to appreciate that kind of mentality and seeing my family come together and also part of the Canadian uh, part of the family flew into the Netherlands for the funeral and helped arrange things and support support each other. And that's only when I really started to appreciate that that idea of, of how much family adds to your life. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say for me, it's been similar. At least we don't have a great separation on our family, but the part of how a death in a family can really unite uh, people mm -hmm. together. I think that is, uh, that is really, really powerful. And mm -hmm. I never understood the value of family before I lived like 18 years of my life, because if you just have the short time span, they're no different than, just roommates or something or you know mm -hmm. friends yeah but when you see friends come and go when you see people come and go relationships come and go and the family sticks you're like oh mm -hmm. okay now i get it but you have to really experience it before you really, exactly really get that. it yeah so, yeah especially yeah, well i'm very happy that i've had the privilege of having a family that is able to stay together and, and be yeah. there throughout my entire life um and in that way i feel like i've had the best hand of cards dealt to me i don't think there's anyone who's gotten a better family that's more supportive or more mm. together than i had well maybe you'd say it about your family but as in like i'm very very content with how that how that goes in my in my family especially with my with my parents yeah um it's it's really it's very unique to have two people um who are always on your side always supporting you always want just what's best for you, their best interests, and are actively working to to secure that as well. Like my parents will put a lot of time and effort into helping me move or just helping me when things get rough and not just financially, but in times of in terms of actually coming out, carrying things, stuff mm -hmm. like that. I remember yeah. a couple uh, months ago, I was in The Hague and a group of uh, 17 year olds threatened to stab me, <laughs> which is really oh, strange. I was walking next to a mega stores, which is just this huge mall. Um, Cause I, I came from Hama and I love to build things like there's a wooden frame behind me right now. And I was walking with a bunch of, of wooden beams um, and they were really heavy. Um, and I was carrying them and this group of kids came up and acted like they were going to help me. 
Um, so I said, oh, that's so nice. I could really use some help. That would be great. And then they pretended that they were going to help me carry the wood, but then they would throw it on the, on the ground. And, um, and, um, and that kind of happened a couple of times. The first time I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe something weird happened. I didn't see it. It was behind me. Just like, let's try again. And they kind of started to rile up and get more and more like entertainment out of watching me struggle with, with these large pieces of wood that I was carrying. Yeah. And eventually one of them told the, the group that I called him the N word, which I would never do. Mm -hmm. Um, and also a crazy thing to make up. And then they were all immediately alert and angry and started and they formed this circle around me and stood stood around me and, and kind of put their hands in their pockets and said, like, we all have knives, like we're gonna stab you if you're not careful, like stuff like that. Like um and then I said, Well, you, you leave me no choice, I would have to call the police. And then they were like, No, please, sir, okay. don't call the police. Yeah. Um, and I remember after that happened, I a couple days later I called my dad and told him the story. And he asked me, why were you in The Hague carrying a bunch of wood by yourself um, through the city? And I said, well, because I want to build things. Yeah. <laughs> I was just getting wood to build things around the house. He yeah. was like, yeah, that's that's fine and all. But why would you not have called me? And I said, dad, you don't have a car. He didn't have a car at the time. Mm -hmm. I don't expect you to hop on the bike, go to the Arnhem station, take a train to The Hague, which takes two and a half hours, then get to my house just for us to go to Hama, get some wood and then come back and then he would leave again yeah. and he said if you asked me to do that i would do that immediately he said like i it doesn't matter what kind of thing if you're getting stabbed or not if there's something that you struggle with doing by yourself mm -hmm. then you should know after all this time that you should call me yes yeah. I, I was like but why would i do that i can just carry a bunch of wood i can do it by myself and he was like i don't care you should call me yeah i don't care if you can do it by yourself or not Mm -hmm. so like i don't care how long i have to travel i would just like to help you even if it's just for 15 minutes mm -hmm. and i was just I'm, and i'm still amazed that at how lucky it is to have two people my mom too yeah. who are willing to help you out in this kind of situation that's really beautiful if it happens again just just call me just in, instead of your dad because i will <laughs> feel really bad to know that your dad travels like three hours to to do that i'll, I'll gladly do that well, I think my dad would be would be really happy to hear that I have friends that that would want to help me out too. Yeah, yeah, I'd help you. Also, I don't know how to build things, so this, <laughs> your skills might come in handy in the future for me. So you know. Yeah, if you need any renovation around the house, I can uh, help put some wooden beams together. I actually think that's such a valuable skill because people really don't know how to do it. I mean, I'm I'm an example, but you know how <laughs> furniture can just cost so much, and you look like. You look at the furniture and you're like, this is quite simple to make, is it not? Uh -huh. Yeah. Like TJ yeah. could probably make it. Like you could make it. It would be fine. Uh, yeah. I went to some friends and they had a light bulb that ran out and they didn't know how to change it. Mm. <laughs> he asked me and they were like, can you take a look at this light? It wasn't just a normal light bulb. It was like a built-in spotlight, but still like they didn't yeah. know. So it's like. I thought you needed a guy for that as well, but then I yeah. Googled it and then it turns out to be really easy. Yeah. Yeah. Things like that. <laughs> and it was in their things. bathroom. So they were just like peeing with the door open otherwise it was pitch oh yeah in there. yeah like stuff like that yeah i mean you should know these lights the only way to turn them on is to screw them up <laughs> because i haven't come around to fixing them since uh, nine months ago <laughs> that's so funny you come in and it's pitch black and you have to yeah screw I have to in screw the like... light bulb oh but that's fine that's fine okay it, feel, it feels like that it feels like that's the kind of thing that people would have to do in the past 
I said yeah. like before when the light yeah, yeah. bulb was invented, but the light switch wasn't or something. Exactly, exactly. So it makes <laughs> me feel a bit more connected. Light bulbs every time. Yeah. We recently had a power outage here, and it was like the most magical time because we had yeah. candles on. We're like, we should do yeah. this every week. Like, let's make it a habit. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's such a that's such a nice feeling. Yeah, I, it's such a magical feeling. Uh, until it lasts for more than like two days and you have to clean out your freezer and fridge because everything yes, is yes, like yes. rotten. <laughs> but I'll tell you a story that, a about uh, about water. We had water outage mm-hmm. for like a second. So I was at my parents' house and like some of my siblings were there. The water wouldn't work. And I just came back from a run. So I was sweaty. I couldn't, I couldn't shower. And uh, so the tap doesn't work and I go inside. And I see the nearest water bottle in the fridge and I start like gulping it. And my brother loses <laughs> shit. He's like, this is the only water bottle we have. And I, was like, ah. I, just, I just worked out and I eat this water and all these things. And we turn on each other like this. And uh, then after five minutes, the water came back. It was like, oh. <laughs> so that's, that's how vulnerable we really are mm-hmm. uh, when times get rough. So I'd like mm-hmm. to think I'm uh, resourceful, but I'm, I'm not. No supermarket, no water, no gas. I'm done. <laughs> so yeah all right so when when the apocalypse comes i don't know don't call me by your house yeah no don't call me i'll be, I'll be done for yeah <laughs> um, okay that's very interesting now i want to move into some thinkers because we've spoken briefly about some of this stuff before but i was just curious as to if there were some thinkers that uh, had some influence over you over the years that you have like read a bit here and there it's great that you brought this up because I wanted to ask you a, a similar thing about one that has uh-huh. has influenced me. Uh-huh. And um, it kind of connects to um, an idea you brought up the other week when we were talking about being or striving to be Christ-like yep. um, or striving to incorporate the values of Christ or of Jesus Christ into your life and not in a in a way in which you you think that that level is attainable but in a way for which it is a the value set is to strive or to be able to come even remotely close yeah to, exactly to uh, that set of values and um that reminded me of um this book the plague by albert camus um mm-hmm. and camus is an absurdist writer so absurdist writing is not about um uh, absurd things happening it's about a worldview of that why things happen and why things happen to the universe are because of completely absurd reasons that are beyond our conception okay. and that trying to understand why things happen to us um, on a cosmic or on a universal scale only leads to more suffering. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, in the book, there's this character who um, is a preacher, a, a Catholic preacher, and um, the preacher has this sermon in which he says this plague that is dawned on our civilization, on our city. Um, it is because of this and this reason and because of this goal and and God wants us to go through this or to pe- be penalized or to strive for this change in values or to become more saint-like or things like that. Just he's trying to connect this, this event of the plague coming to the town with this cosmic reason. Um, and there's a couple interesting characters in that book. And a, a different one is is um, uh, a character called, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but he's called Taru or Taro. Mm-hmm. And he um, he's, his role within the plague is to form these squads of people who, um, who help out the sick. And he says, I'm doing this because I strive to be saint-like. And he's saying, I'm very, he's 
a very reserved character who doesn't talk about his motivations much, but he says the only thing that I can uh, do that is in line with my value set is try to help these people tr the same way that that Jesus Christ or a saint would have would have tried to help these these people. And while you were talking to me about this, I was like, man, you remind me a lot of this of this character. This character, who, yeah. Who who also strives to be saint like. And I was wondering where you came up with this idea of. Or how you came on to this idea of striving to be Christ-like or saint. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, um, it's a long journey into understanding religion in general, uh, Christianity specifically, because that's what I was brought up with and what I struggled with and what I continue to um, think about a lot. And what I grew up thinking that it was all about what you believed. So in Dutch, we also say, uh, which means like are you mm -hmm. believey <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's a bit of a funny term but like i didn't know that that is a modern thing to think about religion in a belief type of way like very propositional um do you believe in things that are where there's no evidence for them happening let's say type of mm -hmm. type of religion and i i didn't like that as a child growing up mm -hmm. um as I look deeper into those things, I got a lot of help from uh, my father, who is a theologian, amongst other things, many other things, <laughs> and, uh, and my brother, who also struggled with these questions. So my brother, he turned atheist at some point, or at least he would consider himself an atheist mm -hmm. um, consciously at some point. And he's very philosophical. He, he studied philosophy. He's teaching philosophy. And so he was reading a lot of thinkers and he would basically just feed me anyone he would find interesting. If he thought it was like going to help me in my journey, then he would uh, tell me about him or her. So the first person I think I came across with this, it might either be a Jordan, Jordan Peterson or um, someone who's quite close to him. So Go it's ahead. relatively recent then because he hasn't been that popular. No, no, like 2000s for me like 2019 or something but i was also okay. the opposite of saint like before that so uh -huh. <laughs> could explain a lot uh, but people around that corner we, we call so you're new you're new to my channel because this is the first time you're on it but mm -hmm. this, this channel i think and in general a lot of people that i speak to are part of this little corner and this little corner consists of like um people that have been largely influenced by jordan peterson about his like his biblical things and all these things and then other creators that think about uh, more philosophical topics and religious topics and just people that are a bit more philosophically and intellectually inclined talking about meaning and these things and spirituality but i'd like to speak about it online so that's that's what you have become a part of today mm. anyway there's a lot of thinkers that that speak of this and there's only one common denominator amongst them even though they might believe different things they're all like the answer is behave as good as you can like toward the people around you mm -hmm. so i guess maybe the first spark was with jordan but it it advice to me only works when i hear it from independent uh, people let's say that come there with different methods and motives mm -hmm. so for me the only way to fix the world is to to behave in that way okay uh, so yeah that's i guess how i came to it do you yeah it reminds me of Marx Aurelius meditations writing. Yeah, we need not further discuss what it is to be a good man. I will, I will just cease to discuss it, and I will be one. Exactly, that's beautiful. Yeah, um, so that's it. 
And so you were opposite of saint like before. What do you think? I I don't need to know about all the crimes against humanity you've committed. <laughs> <laughs> what um what do you think prompted this this change in thinking or this reorientation? Um, breaking point that I've discussed before on someone else's channel was that um, this is also when I stopped drinking. I went to a party and I drank a lot. And then we went to the store to get even more and we drank even more. And it was so much in a row that I didn't realize what was coming. And then it just hits you in a wave. I don't know if you've ever done like six shots in a row, but while you're taking the shots, you're good. But then at some point, six drinks hit you at the same time. Mm-hmm, yeah. And so I, um, I vaguely remember that night from that point onward. I remember a friend of mine looking at me like, what on earth are you doing? This is so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And then coming home, uh, throwing up and my father going to me and I'm looking at, up at him. And I'm like at my lowest moment on earth, right? I was also drenched, like my, my clothes were on the floor. Mm-hmm. And um, just feeling ashamed, let's say, disappointed in myself, being like, what am I actually doing? Then the next day, my parents had a talk with me, like, you're not doing liquor for a while. Like, you, you can stick to beers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And this this probably wasn't the first time that your parents saw something like this, right? With you having two or more older siblings. Yeah, well, I was definitely the worst. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, that's what they always say. Like, I, 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 I uh, lowered the standard so much that what my siblings did build in comparison to <laughs> what I did. I don't want to ping myself as a terrible terrible person because i think that's mm-hmm. not fair to who i was like i also need to give myself some grace there but mm-hmm. if you see little videos of me like recently my little brother sent me one i was like a little bully like you see the darkness inside of me you know mm-hmm. and so what what prompted the change i think initially was shame a lot of uh failing also academic failures like i had to redo uh, a year in high school which i was very disappointed about and things not just not going well for me. And then another point where I think could have been like a turning point was that I would go to my father and be like, why, why do you keep supporting me? Uh, I really didn't understand it. So I, I broke down being like, how can you possibly still be in my corner after everything I've done to you guys? Like mm-hmm. I was so mean to my parents and they were rarely ever mean to me unless I really made it very hard not uh-huh. to be, like nearly impossible not to be. So, and, then, and even then, I assume it's just out of frustration of seeing your kid going through a hard time. Or, exactly. Or, yeah, or kind of this love-based frustration. Right? Yeah, yeah. So for me, I think the reason I try to be as good as I try to be is because I know how bad I was comparatively. And so when for me that door opened of being like, there is actually no limit to how good you can be. I was like, shit, we got to work now. Now we got to let, let's get there because we have a long road to go. Yeah, so then you yeah. start building it slowly. And I remember just my siblings first, not believing me at all because I was just starting like, you're not fooling anyone. You're terrible. <laughs> you know, you don't say it, but I know that that's how they looked at me. Like yeah, my little yeah. brother, I bullied him so much, at least. I asked him about it. He says he wasn't very bothered by it, but I think any other kid would have been. It's just that he's quite exceptional. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, first they don't believe you and then you start, keep building it. And then a couple of years later, they're like, oh, this is you now. So it's been very incremental, very slow. 
And um, it's my deepest motivation in life because I've seen how much I've seen how much good it does. Like just being kind to people. Uh, I have so many like this is this is recorded. I tell people like I I have I have a million meaningful conversations <laughs> a week, and mm -hmm. I record usually one of them. And that's very special because I'm going to be able to watch this back and it's going to be very nice. But I have these conversations all the time for some reason. And that's uh, seeing, seeing how much good that does to the people around me and to myself, that, that gives me fuel for, for life like mm -hmm. nothing else else does. So, I don't think anyone who meets you right now can imagine you bullying someone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, I have video proof. So. <laughs> I mean, it looks pretty bad. You have yeah. like videos of you shoving kids in a locker. And no, it wasn't like that. I was very, so my dad always told me that I should be a comedian. Mm -hmm. um, but he also told me that he told me I was, I should be a comedian because I'm really funny, but I'm only funny when I really hurt people. Oh, and I'm really good at hurting. I, I was You're really a good, good like people. button pusher. Well, it was, I knew I would know so, so much about someone that I would mm -hmm. really, yeah. Button pusher, I think it's a good one. I would really know where to get them. Mm -hmm. and my my youngest brother is exactly like this he really adopted this for me um he's not as bad as i was but he still knows how to do it like i would know exactly their their deepest insecurity and then i would creatively hurt them the most yeah i feel like that very often i i feel quite similar in that i've for a long time had somewhat of a increased ability to view people's insecurities and play into them or at least realize them and i wonder how that kind of thing develops within a kid or within any person yeah. to to have an increased ability to see people's things they're upset about and um, i wonder especially how that ties into us now having an era of um of media promoting to be more vulnerable and to be more open about these insecurities and problems and things and how it ties into also people feeling more alienated and victimized and maybe therefore also more building this ability to see people's insecurities and play into them. And I wonder yeah. if that's going to come to a large climax of alienated people and vulnerable people <laughs> kind yeah. of being able to play into each other's, into each other's insecurities and problems. Yeah. I wonder about that as well. I think that it definitely comes, it, it's definitely like a sword. So you can, you can use it for good and for bad. Well, actually, that's not a, that's not a very good metaphor, but <laughs> I, I speak about swords and knives in a sense, like they're quite, quite neutral, but uh -huh. sword cuts both ways. So I'm both really good. I was really good at that, but now I've become quite good at pinpointing exactly what it is, um, like giving compliments to a person. That's something I've really crafted as well. And I think it comes from oh, the same. So you're taking it in the opposite direction of also exactly. knowing how to. I'm using the the, the weapon differently. <laughs> what is, I shouldn't use the word weapon, but no, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. You know what I yeah, mean. It's, so, it starts to get very Machiavellian. Once yeah, know. yeah. I, I, it's not instrumental. Like I really, I connect people. I connect with people not because I want something from them. That's really the last thing that I that I do. Mm -hmm. It's for the connection itself. Like I try to do things for their own sakes. Otherwise, why should I do them? Um, I, I guess I see it similarly, but but also that I connect with people not necessarily for, that I connect with people also based on my insight of how much they can add to my life on a connection level. As in like, um, 
I feel terribly lucky right now with, uh, I must've been very kind to, I don't know, to the universe to, to in this life have so many great friends and family yeah. and things like that. My previous self must've been a great person. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if there is such a concept, right. But, yeah. um, but I also feel like in a way that is a reflection of, of what you say, this ability to view people's strengths and insecurities and gauge them and also be able to build friendships with people for which you see them as someone who can add a lot to your life and, and also you can add a lot to their life. Although I, of course, you as a person always wonder how much am I adding to someone's life compared to how much they're adding to my yeah. life. But I definitely feel like there are a lot of people who don't have that ability that we talked about of identifying people's insecurities or strength or strong points and in extension not being able to find people or build friendships with people that have the strengths that they yeah. feel are useful to them yeah that's very possible and that's why i think uh, community is very important or in general having a very diverse group of people together let's say in a family back in the day you would have mm. all these misfits together you would even have the, <laughs> the uncle that cheats and stuff because it's all about like not choosing you know this, yeah this, this is what you have and that's family right so that's that's what family teaches you i think and it's a very important thing that i've i've only started learning recently is that um like the modern age is very much about picking and choosing like relationships mm -hmm. you have the choice between millions of people like well not really but you know you can scroll forever and even though i still do in a way i am selective especially mm -hmm. with with friends and, and my relationship. I've been very selective and I continue to be. I do try to speak to everyone that, you know, I think everyone deserves that. Doesn't mean that, deserve, that they deserve my full attention or that it would even be beneficial to them. Mm -hmm. But I try to um, also the people at the margins give them their due, let's say, because otherwise that can go resentful quite quickly. So I think mm -hmm. that's, that's extremely important to, to have a mechanism in society where everyone gets their due and everyone, you know, gets mm -hmm. checked on and stuff like this. And so that's where the, the Christian values, again, come in, I guess, because even though I don't visit church often, I do see that there's a place similar to, to a mosque, let's say, there's a place where people of all ages and, and you know, places mm -hmm. they come together and they check on each other and it's and it's all it's all good so i wanted to tie into that um with i i'd long asked myself is it possible for people to organize these kind of communities mm. um outside of religion and i think there you kind of bump into this great uh humanitary common um idea idea which um I think is how how religion ties into humanity is such that um, that we are differentiated from other animals by our ability to share this religious idea, yeah. uh, and that it, and that that is one of the ideas that have has allowed us to build community in the first place. Mm -hmm. So so I'm not necessarily a, the biggest fan of Yuval Noah Harari. I think he's a great <laughs> thinker in a lot of in a lot of fields and has a lot to offer, right? But not that I identify with all of his ideas. But he he says um, that um, you cannot convince a bunch of uh, a bunch of chimps or other type of primate to come together and build a temple to honor their monkey god. 
yeah. um, or some banana god or whatever Chinsa yeah. would have would have as their deity. Uh-huh. Um, but you can convince humans to come together and build uh temples for their deities of of um fertility of the land, for example, mm-hmm. with with Demeter and Persephone in in, mm-hmm. in Latin uh, and uh, Greek mythology and things mm-hmm. like that. Um and so I, I think similarly that maybe this this community that what that we built based on religion um is so tied back to our to what evolutionarily differentiates us from other primates that I'm very careful about the idea of letting go of these religious values and these religious ideas. Yeah. I'm very worried that if we I, I'm completely non-religious um mm-hmm. spiritually, as in I'm I have a hard time believing that any of the values which i think are very useful but any of the stories that are presented by religion are uh, true or actually happened but i'm very worried that if we let go of this idea of religion that we are severing a very strong tie to what evolutionarily yeah. has built this idea of communion and community between people that's very good i'm uh i think we could do a whole episode about defining what is true in terms of story, because that's a lifelong uh, struggle for me, mm-hmm. something that I've had many, many, many conversations about and um, that I've changed my ideas about also many times. Whether we need um, religion is also a very interesting question that I listen to a lot of different people about. Strategically, I would say yes. That's also a very long <laughs> <laughs> a long a long thing so when i first started to like better myself let's say i had this kind of conviction being like oh yeah the religion that's that's for the average man you know like but mm-hmm. i can i can just read my philosophy and my you know oh, i see like you the kind of like i'm above it exactly my stoicism a little mm-hmm. sprinkle of buddhism in here yeah yeah <laughs> you know read my siddhartha and i'm good mm-hmm. and um over the years, I started to to realize and I guess to learn that doing that is a gigantic, um, let's say, manifestation of hubris. And I think it, there's a lot of ego there. <laughs> with, mm-hmm. And yeah, also, yeah. it's yeah, it's like this auto, autodidactic thing, like I can teach myself. There's so much risk there of ego inflation. So mm-hmm. I do that, definitely think that the spiritual tradition or something like a group at least to hold you accountable and people around you that's that's extremely important for starters and then whether that needs to be tied to a religion is a very big question that i don't know the answer to i'm mm-hmm. speaking to uh, a cognitive scientist about this who is very big in this little corner he is very much scarred by his christianity and he tries to popularize and help with an ecology of practices, so multiple types of practices that try to achieve the things that religion has achieved over the past without the negative sides. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's going to work. A lot of people are skeptical of it. Mm-hmm. He's very cautious with it. He's like, I don't want to become a guru. This is not about me, all these things. But people are trying it out. And so he's saying there will always be people that are not able to identify with the religion. So we need to give something for them. Mm-hmm. So that that's a possibility. Um, but yeah, these questions, like, <laughs> I think about them every day and mm-hmm. a lot. And um, and so, yeah, it's good that uh, <laughs> they have you thinking about them as well. Because <laughs> that means that I'm, I'm not alone in this. 
because I think I, it's uh, they're questions of absolute existential necessity. Because mm -hmm. I think if there's anything that that Nietzsche saw right is that um, we kind of did kill kill God. It was really us that did it, and we better be worried about what's coming. Yeah, <laughs> given that we did that. So, and I think we saw a lot of that in the last century, but yeah, so, so I'm not sure, but uh, there, there, there's a lot to say about it. <laughs> I also just think it's too, I think it's too easy to shove, which I think are humanitarian issues within the world and problems that are based off of humanitarian ideas and just push them onto the faults of religion yeah. and say that that is the main wrongdoing. I, I know this isn't some very controversial view um of mine um but but i do think it's it's kind of disappointing how many people fall into that trap um especially people who are themselves religious but yeah. then but then think that no this other religion yeah is exactly the problem that's what you and see they, a lot yeah and they fall into the same trap as as atheists pinning it on every religion mm -hmm. um but then what about this religion is the problem they kind of just say, yeah, it's the religion is the problem. What about this religion could could be the root cause or the root problem that is causing yeah. a certain conflict? And a lot of people relate to the Middle East, right? And say that that especially within Afghanistan, Iraq, and Iran, which are countries that European powers have have toyed with for mm -hmm. for a century, right? And mm -hmm. completely demolished, that somehow the religion there is is the problem. And not some specific fact about the religion, but that the religion itself or the pursuance of 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 islam would be the root factor in causing war and conflict there which I, I i find such a such a trampoline park of jumping from conclusions yeah to to arrive at 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 islam being the the cause of conflict in the middle east i think a lot of that is built on the idea that a lot of atheists have and i think the new atheist movement is diminishing over time right now a lot of people are leaving it it's actually very interesting this lady Ayan Hersan Ali, I'm not sure if I say her name right, who was also part of that movement recently, uh, converted to Christianity. But anyway, all that aside, um, it comes from this idea from the new atheist that if you don't have a religion, you're just going to turn into a very rational being with great mm -hmm. morality and all these things, and your values will just align perfectly with what we had. And um, I think that's not true. I don't know for 100%. But I've seen a lot of people, once they lost the stories, once they mm -hmm. lost the traditions, also completely lose the, the values. Also themselves as well, yeah. Themselves, yeah, turn into nihilism. Because if there's no morality, I mean, <laughs> then there's no good and bad. So it's all relative. So good luck mm -hmm. figuring that out. Um, so yeah, I'd be, I'd be very worried about that. A lot of this for me is really caution. And I see caution also in a lot of atheists being like, I just don't want that totalitarian nightmare to happen again. So I've I've seen it happen with the religious, but I don't think there's any evidence to show that that is not just a human thing and not just mm -hmm. an institutional thing, any institution that can happen in the state also, especially. So that that's why I'm not very convinced by, by atheist thought. I don't think it's very well thought through, especially on a longer time scale. can work for a couple of years, but then... You also have the problem of suffering, you know, problem of meaning. Let's well, say. I can I can really easily identify with the with the new atheist 
problem with religion of of people seeing their own problems that they're currently facing and thinking how is this book that's written 2000 years ago going to assist me in this problem what does what does the bible or the torah or the quran or any of those possibly have to say about um about fast fashion or yeah. about <laughs> or like just problems that people face or or about um the influence of social media or mm-hmm. things like that and then there's on the other side then religious fanatics can answer that with some very obscure passage and yes. the depths of religion that somehow is supposed to relate to this issue but in, in truth it's it's a book written in a different time that presents a value set and doesn't necessarily provide a solution yeah um and i think that a lot of of new atheists are looking at these scriptures thinking where is the solution to this problem yeah. that i'm currently facing because because they can't see or maybe there is no connection between the value set that's presented and their problem yeah and i think it it, it aligns with the idea that all those stories are fairy tales and what's there to learn about fairy tales and then they think nothing mm-hmm. but then i think you vastly underestimate the power of narrative and story yeah and this and then is where they I watch a show like Avatar: The Last Airbender, and they think, "Wow, there's so much wisdom in this show." Exactly. And then they read the Bible, and they're like, "This is just a made-up story." <laughs> exactly. They're watching <laughs> Star is, Wars. Yeah. They're going to Star Wars conferences, <laughs> and they're they're taking the lightsabers, and that's so important to them. But then, I think yeah, because they, it's they so... identify with this idea of the Force and the cosmic force. Exactly. But... And they think that's great, but they they enjoy it because they think it's cool, but they want to see the spiritual underline, but may not be able to get that from an ancient scripture. So so maybe the problem with new atheism or or the solution to new atheism from a religious standpoint is to have a revolution of how religious ideas are presented. Yeah. Such that that people can identify or relate them to their current problem. Yeah, because I think right now there's a big intellectual block. People are like, well, there's no way that dude he was dead so how 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 is that possible that he would like did his body go to a cloud or something like well, how mm-hmm. am i supposed to understand that and for me this is where my let's say ability to embrace my christian roots came in is that i was going through the new testament with my father and I had all these intellectual blocks of course as, as an atheist would have been like what well, there's no way to this good and there's no way to this mm-hmm. and that caused me to not be able to believe the story and a story can only work on you if you start believing it that's why star wars works on this we know it, it's not possible technically but if you believe <laughs> yeah. the story i mean mm-hmm. we're never going to question like oh but isn't there no sound in space like huh no of yeah, course yeah. we're <laughs> believing it we're completely into the story our, our physiology is completely bound to what happens in this story. Same with Avatar mm-hmm. The Last Airbender. I don't care that we're not able to shoot water from our hands um, or actually bend water with our hands. Uh-huh. <laughs> and also I love Avatar, so don't don't get the wrong idea. But <laughs> but yeah, the believability is gone because we've tied it to history. And and I think this is also largely due to a lot, due to a lot of religious scholars who have grounded their religion in materialism. So they're going to look for like where Moses' footstep was or something. And it's like that it's not it's not about that. Like you're taking a materialist approach, like you're reading a history book or a science book, or you're uh, applying a forensic, you know, yeah, analysis yeah. <laughs> about the resurrections. Like if you think you understand what happened there, you're wrong, whether you're religious or not. And so um I think that's where it went wrong. And definitely it came forth from religious people misunderstanding i think fundamentally um what was going on but i think now we see also that movement crumbling 
And to me, still, it's not obvious that we have to get back to religion on a wide scale. Um, but I definitely have started to see the value of it more than any time of my life. And for me, it's it's a part of me that I will never uh, shake, I think. It's just like my, my nationality. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also not applying it to everyone. I'm not like, mm-hmm. uh, what do you say, Pres- prescribing it to everyone, being like, this is your answer. Because for some people, it's the block is too big to get there. Or the whether it's intellectual, whether it's emotional, whether you have trauma there, that that's very possible. So that's why I've been toying with these with these questions. Mm-hmm. It's just to give you a bit of a glimpse. Because <laughs> yeah. one, me, this relating back to my my parents and this this idea of discipline and how it's been one of the factors that has that has made a huge impact within my life. This. Um, notion of of doing things regularly on schedule no matter what comes up and that's one of the things that from that i've i really appreciate about um about some um branches of islam is this Mm -hmm. idea of having discipline in spirituality yeah especially when it comes to having a routine in praying uh for some it's five or six times or three times a day uh with a certain ritual i think is is really valuable that this idea of spirituality and reflection and and grace and thankfulness towards your own life can be tied to an idea such as earthly discipline um and i think that that can help in in removing this kind of barrier between the spiritual and the physical yeah. is that they are both both tied and both of their successes can be dependent on how good you are at, at executing this thing within discipline mm-hmm. within the framework of discipline and I think that um, the notion of um, waking up slightly before sunset or at sunset um, and uh, praying after sundown would do so many people good, even in just fixing their sleep schedules. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of these ideas, I think, and implementation of religion is, can be so useful on so many levels. I, I personally really enjoy to meditate during or before sunrise and after mm-hmm. sunset. Um, and I'm not, uh, I'm definitely not a Muslim. And if I was, I wouldn't be a very modest one, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that definitely is, is something I took from that religion, which I think is immensely helpful and yeah. immensely valuable. Yeah. I feel similarly, especially about, uh, well, the, the action, like you say, the discipline of it, praying five times a day is another example that I greatly respect. And I also see that. I come from Protestantism and there it's all about the belief. Like I told you, that's what our country is kind of built on. And I think it's the reason we have so many secular people. You mean the, the separation belief... of the material and the... Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's in the Lutheran Protestantism. Yeah. Yeah. And when it turns very personal and also intellectual and propositional, it's much easier to fall apart. Like I don't know a lot of kids around me and even my siblings for example that didn't go to school and open a science book and were like well i was wrong church mm-hmm. is wrong i'm gone yeah. and yeah, so exactly, yeah. i think people especially uh, muslims that are brought up with with deep participation in a religion realize that it's that's not the most important thing what you believe what you act how you act is is there, when you see it how, how tight-knit a lot of those communities are how strongly they're still adhering to what they're doing. And you could argue about, you know, a lot of parts of that religion, but one thing that they do get very right is that spiritual discipline, like you say, and then the belief comes forth from that. And that makes them so much stronger 
in adhering to that. And it, it causes families to stick together. It causes whole societies to stick together. And um, it makes a massive difference in your life. I feel I know as well. Some of the best people I know are, are Muslims. And that's why I've told uh, Karen, whose channel I've been on a couple of times now, she has a channel about meaning and she's a Christian. And I keep telling her like, I don't see myself as better than, <laughs> than them. And I, even though maybe intellectually, I might think that, that this is a more peaceful thing or whatever. Mm -hmm. I still or the other way around that you'd be more rational or something. Yeah. And I can't, I can't justify that to myself because of how many times I've been wrong about things, especially propositional things. So I can stick to what I know and be like, this works for me. And I see it work for many people around me. But also I see so much going wrong because of it. And I've seen so many people leave it so easily and it's so scattered and all these things. So a lot to be said there for sure. Um. <laughs> yeah. This, this take of mine is also very tied to, um, something you can really easily argue so so i'm assuming so i'm saying that the problems that uh are that we are seeing within religious societies also in non-religious societies might not be tied to religion but might be tied to human nature mm -hmm. um the same way the benefits you would get from religion are probably or would also be tied to human nature and then the question is or what you could wonder is in times of crises we see a lot of these benefit yeah these beneficial qualities of religion come forward also in a religious people so this sense of community and discipline and sticking together and helping each other is also very common within um areas within people within areas in, in crisis um so then you start kind of the conclusion that i come from which is a huge leap is is in no way rationally okay. bound right Here this is go. something that i'm basically just making up is that um is that in a lot of ways you could tie in religion as a way to come closer to both the bad and the good values that are more inherent to human civilization and mm -hmm. human nature than than you would have if you were an atheist that you might be more bound to both the good and bad in human society and and pushing this idea within a religious framework than outside of it i see but th this is under very specific circumstances, yes. a very specific group, and and does not apply at all to to a wider society. But it's it it ties into me and my family specifically. And please do not <laughs> think that I would hold this as any universal truth. I think it's yeah, full yeah. of fallacies. It's completely rational fallacies. But it's it's um it's something that that I think identifies within my family. It's an intuitive leap, and I think. Uh... Yeah, <laughs> it might hold true if if you test it, but uh, l let's say on that skill at least. Yeah, you know? yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, that's really good. We're nearing uh, the end of our time today, but um, I was wondering if there's anything you wanted to get out or any ideas you have for the upcoming conversation. I would that love you wanted to, to discuss to at yep. some point talk to you about. Um, and this this ties in with religion, but is not an essential part of the of the conversation. Is when do different people, and when generally or morally, or according to great thinkers, or what are some perspectives on when it is permissible, morally, or useful to enact violence, or mm. to have violent thoughts, or to yeah have violent actions, and yeah. what do different thinkers and people think about this concept? 
Um, because I know that, for example, Jeremy Bentham and, and utilitarianism has a way to justify violence quite mm -hmm. easily within the framework, um, which can be very dangerous. And then other scriptures and, and a lot of religious scriptures say that that it's never permissible. Um, and how do people think about this and how do you think about this? Okay, that's very exciting. I'm, uh, <laughs> so I'm not very philosophically astute. I don't know mm -hmm. a lot. I know for myself what I think about that and I can look into a bit. I'll speak to my brother also about it. So that's a, that's yeah. an exciting topic for the people yeah. listening. Um, thank you for your time today. It was very enlightening to hear about your childhood. I'm very happy to finally have gotten a bit closer to that. <laughs> I'm very sure that next time we speak, I'll completely think differently about everything we've discussed. <laughs> well, then that makes you uh, a good thinker in my book. So oh, that's very kind. It Thanks also for... might might make me just a very inconsistent person. <laughs> I think the best thinkers are inconsistent. Maybe so. I hope so. Because <laughs> otherwise I'm I'm terrible. So <laughs> all right. Have a good uh, rest of your yeah, night. Yeah, thank Tira. you. You too. Go and we'll um, speak oh, soon. I wanted to ask you one oh, yeah. thing for for our personally engaged <laughs> listeners. Go ahead. Um what are you gonna do with your and your fiance's last name when you get married? Oh, that's actually a topic of conversation still. She's willing to take mine. Mm. And today she thought maybe half-half, but she's thinking about it. She's more leaning toward taking mine. Okay. That's, that. <laughs> <laughs> Why were you wondering? No, I was just curious because yeah. I was going to ask that when I was at the... Ah, okay okay at the party but then i got distracted by the neanderthal instant which is for oh yeah Let, let's not <laughs> let's not discuss that yeah okay no that's good yeah mm. so we'll see what happens with that but you'll have a dutch name so that will be maybe a bit confusing as well yeah yeah but but we'll see what happens mm -hmm. so okay. uh, i'm excited to um to see what's gonna happen there yeah it's exciting I, i'd love to speak again thank you for your time and yeah, we'll see you hopefully you in the Once gym again, soon talking to you let's educates me more on my own standpoints than on uh, on your yeah and you'll see if anyone has anything to say about it not a lot yeah. of people listen but sometimes people do so so we'll mm -hmm. see what happens maybe we'll have somebody that has polarizingly different opinions and we'll have to debate them live from the studio oh that'll be exciting <laughs> yeah all right thanks for your time Tijiro. all right thank you see so you. much bye-bye